Hello and welcome to Infectious Info. This podcast is brought to you by the Infectious Disease Working Group from the University of Toronto. The Infectious Disease Working Group is a collaboration of public health graduate students who aim to provide public awareness of infectious diseases, including COVID-19. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at infectious underscore info. This podcast is funded by the University of Toronto Student Engagement Award, which supports student-led projects that can contribute to building healthy, resilient, and equitable communities as a part of our post-COVID recovery. Hi, everyone. My name is Marian Saab. And my name is Catherine Liu. And we are Masters of Public Health students here at the Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. So before we introduce our wonderful guests, I wanted to begin with a land acknowledgement and take some time to reflect on what it means to be a settler and honor those who came before us. I acknowledge the land that the University of Toronto operates on. For thousands of years, it has been the traditional land of the Huron-Wendat, the Seneca, and the Mississaugas of the Credit. Today, this meeting place is still the home to many Indigenous people from across Turtle Island, and we are grateful to have the opportunity to work and benefit from this land. Today, we are joined by Dr. Shelley Bulletin, who is the director of the Center for Vaccine Preventable Diseases and an associate professor at the Dalalana School of Public Health and the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathobiology at the University of Toronto. She is also a scientist at Public Health Ontario. Dr. Bulletin's research program utilizes a multidisciplinary approach to evaluate whether our population is adequately protected from vaccine-preventable diseases. Applying a public health lens, her studies combine epidemiological and microbiological methods to answer questions related to population immunity and vaccine effectiveness and determine our future risk for outbreaks or epidemics. Hello, Dr. Bolton. Thank you so much for joining us today. We are so excited to have you as our guest. Hello, thank you so much for having me. Of course. So to start off, um, could you briefly describe what you do as a professor at DLSPH at U of T and also as a scientist at Public Health Ontario? Sure. So as you mentioned uh, in your introduction, I am an associate professor at the University of Toronto, and my research program focuses mainly on vaccine preventable diseases, but also on other infections and understanding if our population is adequately protected from these infections. And I do this using a variety of methods, so some laboratory methods and some epidemiological tools. Uh, much of my work has been focused on measuring antibodies in specific populations to uh, various infections. So as part of my academic work, I also teach graduate students. I've been faculty for almost 10 years at the University of Toronto, so I've taught a variety of courses on epidemiology, infectious diseases, and surveillance. And as part of my work, I also supervise graduate students, so either MPH practicum students or PhD students. And that kind of supervision is a little bit different than teaching because students will have their own independent project, and I guide them along the way from start to finish. Uh, at Public Health Ontario, I also do a lot of research in the same area of population immunity and vaccine preventable diseases. Uh, Public Health Ontario is a provincial crown agency and it provides scientific and technical advice to stakeholders. So uh, groups like government, public health units, 
hospitals and other healthcare and other related sectors. Uh, as part of my work at Public Health Ontario, I've also done a lot of pandemic response in the last few years. Uh, for example, early in the pandemic, I led Public Health Ontario's COVID-19 zero surveillance. So zero surveillance, if you're not familiar, aims to measure either exposure or immunity in a population that depends on what infection you're talking about using antibody tests, which are also known as serology tests. And this work was really important early in the pandemic and throughout the pandemic to help us understand COVID-19 exposure in the population. And early on, uh, the work at PHO helped us understand how well our public health measures were working. Thank you so much. That's great. Um, and then we also mentioned that you uh, act as the director for the Center for Vaccine Preventable Diseases. So could you expand a little on that role and maybe what the center does? Absolutely. Uh, so this center is hosted by the Dalalana School of Public Health, but actually serves the whole university. We have members from faculty across U of T, so Dalalana School of Public Health, Temerty Faculty of Medicine, Leslie Dan Faculty of Pharmacy, uh, social work, chemistry, bioengineering, really from all over. And these individuals, in addition to being faculty, have a variety of jobs. So some are researchers, some are public health professionals, some are clinicians, and they each bring their own unique lens to the vaccine research and the vaccine education that we do. Uh, we aim to be interdisciplinary in everything that we do. So really we're a gathering place for vaccine researchers from across the university, no matter what their area of research. Uh, and we see the center as a place where we can catalyze new ideas and research collaborations to answer questions about vaccines. And for us, education and training is really, really important. So we have a lot of webinars and in-person events all the time where we focus on topics and vaccines that we feel are a priority. So, for example, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we held a symposium that was fascinating on raising routine vaccination coverage post the COVID-19 pandemic. So my role as director has a lot of different aspects. Together with an advisory committee, I'm responsible for setting out the strategy for the center and also the plan. So how are we going to achieve the strategy? I'm responsible for all our programming and our staff and for growing the center over time with the goal of having it encompass research and education across the spectrum from bench to bedside or even from bench to policy. So you mentioned that you hold like a lot of different events for different ideas. Um, are these mostly for researchers, I guess, or are there any that like maybe students could be a part of? Yes, we love having students at our events because we really do aim to train the next generation of vaccine researchers. So oh. all events are absolutely open to trainees um, and we try to disseminate information about them uh, as much as we can throughout the university and even externally at the national level. Uh, and we, we really welcome a variety of levels and a variety of disciplines in everything that we do. Okay, that's great. Maybe at the end we can get some information for where to find the events then. Yeah, so we just discussed all your different roles as a professor at University of Toronto, as a scientist at PHO, and as the director for the center. So could you describe why you wanted to do each of these roles and how they kind of relate to each other? Because it is kind of a unique combination of things. Yeah, I think that the roles actually fit really well together. 
because I believe that research informs practice. And I believe also that practice informs research. And I've been doing both since I became a scientist of PHO uh, because both are really important to me. Both research and practice, I feel, are really important aspects of, of science or the kind of science that, that I do at least, which is very applied uh, vaccine research. I feel really fortunate to be able to do both because that way I get to learn from two completely different environments. Yeah, that's really interesting, thank you. All right, moving on to the topic of vaccines. Um, so my first question is, has the pandemic affected how public health officials conduct disease surveillance? I think it has. I think that we've had several advances in surveillance because of the pandemic. So from a methodology perspective, there are a few surveillance methods that either we didn't use before or we used, you know, a little bit here and there, but they weren't widely used in Canada uh, mm -hmm. that have now been normalized. So one example is serosurveillance, which I mentioned earlier. So serosurveillance has been uh, used as a tool or as a surveillance tool for vaccine program evaluation actually since the 1980s in the UK, in the 1990s from across Europe and Australia, but wasn't routinely used uh, for you know, bread and butter infection surveillance in Canada before COVID-19. I think another great example is wastewater surveillance, which has done routinely in different jurisdictions for acute flaccid paralysis, which is how we surveil for polio virus, but it wasn't used extensively for surveillance of other infections previously. I think it's really shown its value, particularly uh, as the pandemic went on and wastewater surveillance got a little bit more developed as a, as a method. Uh, and at the data level, we've also had some improvements in how we capture data. One really good example of that is the database that we use to capture COVID-19 vaccines. Right. That's great. Um, moving on, part of your research focuses on determining how protected a population is from vaccine preventable disease. So we wanted to ask what what is the methodology for measuring protection and is it vaccination rate and other factors? I think that's a great question and there's a lot of different ways that we can measure how well a population is protected from vaccine preventable infections. And different methods really serve different purposes. So it's not a question of using one or using the other. Often it makes sense to use more than one method and then triangulate the data from each method together. So as I've mentioned, my research gravitates towards serosurveillance, which would have a different purpose depending on the infection. So you could use it to measure immunity. So for measles, we could use it to measure immunity. You could use it to measure vaccination, or you can use it just to measure exposure to infection without commenting on whether that exposure has resulted in immunity or not. So, you know, measuring exposure or immunity through what your immune system is producing is very different than measuring vaccine coverage. Vaccine coverage men uh, measures what proportion of individuals were uh vaccinated, while serosurveillance measures their immune response. So really, there are two different things and asking two different questions, and both are very important. Uh, and they're both tools that we use to evaluate how our immunization programs are working. And we would use them both together to get a good understanding of whether a vaccine program is working well. Another method that we can use is vaccine effectiveness. Uh, so vaccine effectiveness compares the proportion of people who were not vaccinated and infected to those who were vaccinated and infected. So that's an epidemiological method, but it doesn't have to be a complex method. So often we can measure vaccine impact just by counting cases. 
So if we introduce a new vaccine and we see that the burden of infection has decreased, that's a great sign that the vaccine program is working well. And sometimes vaccines work to protect not only those who've been vaccinated, but also those around them. That's called an indirect effect of vaccination. And we see this for some vaccines like rotavirus vaccine or chickenpox vaccine. When they were introduced, they were only administered to children, but we saw a decrease in adult infection too, which was really cool. Thank you for that information. That's really great. Um, so some of your research is on measles, and I read that the U.S. had a record low in measles immunizations in 2021, and recently some small outbreaks. So I wanted to ask about your thoughts on how COVID and the pandemic has impacted vaccinations and vaccine hesitancy, especially in the population. So I, I think that's a great question. And, and yes, the U.S. is having some small outbreaks in 2022. There's an outbreak in Ohio right now. Uh, last I looked, it was 77 cases, mainly in really young children under five who are not vaccinated at all, or a minority have only one dose uh, and have quite a high hospitalization rate. Um, really what we see in Ohio reflects what we see elsewhere in the world. Uh, and part of what we see elsewhere in the world is, is related uh, to COVID and what has happened with vaccine coverage worldwide. And so I think that's a really great question to ask. Thank you. Um, so I was just wondering, how has vaccine accessibility changed prior, during, and after the pandemic? I think a lot has changed. <laughs> Yes, a lot has changed and, and there's a lot of work being published about how people feel about routine vaccinations, whether it's for themselves or for their children, uh, before, during and after COVID. And in terms of routine vaccines, we really see mixed data. And, and I think that makes sense because there are so many factors that are associated with the acceptability of vaccines. So things like where people live, what their demographics are, what kind of health system they have, and even how vaccines are delivered in their community. Uh, there are, however, Canadian data that are fairly recent that suggest that COVID-19 is actually associated with an increase of acceptance of routine vaccination uh, in parents when they're thinking about their kids. There was recently a study published by colleagues in Alberta where they did a survey of parents and asked them how they felt about routine vaccination. Uh, in overtime during the pandemic, because they did several surveys, the study found that parents' confidence in the safety and effectiveness of routine vaccines actually increased, as did their acceptance. That's, that's really good to hear, because I think we see a lot of the opposite in the news sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, and you mentioned that something that has been impacted is like the delivery of vaccines. So I was wondering if you could expand that and maybe touch on if that relates to like vaccine equity. Yes. So we had some good lessons about how to deliver vaccines during COVID. And what we've learned is that when it comes to vaccines, there's really no one size fits all approach. So if you recall earlier in the pandemic, there were a variety of different settings where we were able to be vaccinated. There were max vaccination clinics, there were hospitals, pharmacies, there were pop-up clinics, and these happened at all hours of the day and night. In fact, I remember I got my first dose in a hockey rink. So there you go, not something I ever thought I'd be doing and getting vaccinated in a hockey rink. And mine. the learning from that is, pardon? Sorry, mine was in a basketball like center as well. <laughs> Amazing. I know in Brampton, they um, repurposed the soccer center 
and yeah. had like a huge soccer field that turned into a mass vaccine clinic. So I, th I think that's kind of nice because, you know, people like sports vaccines are oh. important. So. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was very happy to be vaccinated in a hockey rink because my family's a big hockey family. So it kind of made sense. Oh, nice. <laughs> um, what we, so basically what we've learned is we need to bring vaccines to the people rather than having people search for vaccines because people have different circumstances and different abilities to, to be able to do that. So basically we have to make it as easy and as accessible as possible. So about a year ago, the science advisory table published a great document focused on behavioral strategies to increase vaccine uptake in children and in youth. And this was focused on COVID, but I would think it could be generalized. The first author was Dr. Yila Shapiro, who's a member of the Center for Vaccine Preventable Diseases, and several other members were authors as well. And part of the document focused on addressing how to reach equity-deserving populations in the best way possible. So one takeaway from that guidance was providing vaccine settings that are as accessible as possible. So when we talk about accessibility, there, there are many ways to make vaccinations accessible, starting from what inform, what language the information that you provide in. So is it in several languages and do, do the languages match uh, what is needed in the community? And also just accessibility of the locations. So where the vaccine clinic is, or in some cases, it makes sense to have a pop-up clinic because that works better. What are the hours? If you're a shift worker and you know you sleep in the day and you work at night, can you find a place to get vaccinated in the middle of the night? And also things like physical accessibility. So for individuals who use wheelchairs, is it gonna be easy for them? Um, and so that was an important, uh, I think, takeaway from that document. And they also said that in, in communities with lower vaccine confidence, it was good to deliver vaccines in partnership with community leaders and community partners to really be able to tailor messages appropriately from trusted sources in order to just ensure that the community is engaged as much as possible. And that is another thing that we saw earlier in the pandemic. And I think, I think that those efforts were a success. Thank you. So um, you've talked a lot about um delivering and accessibility to communities. But I was wondering, in an individual level, how do we approach vaccine information and advocacy in our own communities? That is a really, really good question. Uh, so I can tell you how I approach science communication when I'm speaking to people who are not vaccine scientists. I think science communication can be really tricky because science is a really dynamic thing. So it's not something that's static, it's something that changes all the time. And our understanding of scientific concepts also evolves as we learn more. So that makes it tricky. And it's also very nuanced. So it's really easy to either be confused yourself or to phrase things in a confusing way. So I always try to keep those things in mind. And when I'm communicating what I aim to do, and I hope I'm successful, but I'm not sure, what I aim to do is really speak in a clear, concise and simple manner, which is really hard. I think that there's a, an inverse correlation between how much you know and your ability to <laughs> explain it clearly, but I do my best. Um, and I'm also really honest and transparent about what we know and what we don't know. And I think that's really important in order to build trust with individuals that I'm talking to. I think that's really true. I think the honesty part is really a big component, especially when talking to individuals. Okay, so um, this podcast is uh, listened to by a lot of MPH students. So for any MPH 
or generally like science students listening in today who may be interested in studying vaccine preventable diseases, what are some desirable skills that would be helpful in entering this field? That's a great question. So for people who are already enrolled in an MPH, um, I know that they will already get all the public health and epidemiology competencies covered through school. Uh, so really, the thing that I value, and even in students who are looking to do an MPH or just in general, students who are, who are interested in, in research, the thing that I value the most is curiosity. Because in science, we're always asking why. And so we start with a question that's a why question, and then we do the experiment, and then when we find out the answer to the question we're asking, then inevitably we have two or three more questions that are other why questions about the results that we found. So it's really all about being curious and asking why. And that is the thing that I value most, because I think if you have curiosity, you'll have the ability to go really far. Uh, that's great. Thank you. Uh, we mentioned before that there might be some information that our listeners might be interested might be interested in, such as events that are held by the center. Um, so where could our listeners find that information and also uh, where they could read more about your work or your projects if they're interested? So great question. I'm always happy to let you know where you could hear about CVPD events that are going on. Um, so for students that are at the Dalalana School of Public Health, all our events are advertised through communications at the school. Uh, you can also get on our mailing list. And so the website is uh, www.dlsph.cvpd.utoronto.ca. And if you get on our mailing list, you will hear about everything that goes on. Uh, and also get a digest every month that uh, lets you know where our members have been this month and what they've been up to in the media or their research. I'm also pleased to let you know that in 2023, the CVPD is going to embark on having its own social media presence. Mm -hmm. We are very, very excited. Uh, we had waited to do this because we wanted to make sure that we can do it really, really well. Um, and so stay tuned for more on that. So exciting. <laughs> we'll um, wait for those updates. <laughs> I will follow the Instagram or whatever it is. Or is it amazing? I'm going <laughs> to. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I think that's all the questions we have for today and also our time. But thank you so much again for agreeing to be a guest on our podcast. And this was a lot of really great information. We've learned so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It was tons of fun.